Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million parents and kids building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com ACAST. That's greenlight.com ACAST. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, a.k.a. problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing, you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. They even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit. It's time to get your problem solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get $15 off your order with code PODCAST15. Summer is here. Pack your bag with sunscreen, your emotional sport water bottle, and that steamy bee treat. But wait, don't stop there. This year, there's a new kind of essential that's right at your fingertips. Dipsy is an app full of hundreds of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods, goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut. To explore the bounds of your pleasure, new content is released every week. So in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. Dipsy offers a modern approach to romance through high quality and captivating audio fiction. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to D-I-P-S-E-A stories.com slash pantsuit. Dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. In a part of her book, she says, I am personally pro-life as a minister, but I am politically pro-choice. And when I tell people, when I particularly talk to my female friends, there is a, like a, they have a physical reaction. It's like you can see the relief. Oh, I didn't know that was an option. Like I just, you can see people just sort of exhale. Oh yeah, that's what I am. Yeah, that's definitely what I am. This idea that there are two sides and you must pick one, even if on the most basic level you are uncomfortable with abortion, but understand that the government is not the best venue with which to make these decisions, you still feel forced into one camp or the other, as opposed to being able to say, I see, I see truth in both sides. This is Sarah from the left and Beth from the right. You're listening to Pantsy Politics. No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance.
everyone. On today's episode, we're talking about the government reopening for now. We're going to talk about Roger Stone, and we're going to talk about new developments in Afghanistan. Before we move on to our main segment, where we'll be discussing the new abortion legislation in New York State. And then to close out, we'll be talking about what we always do at the end of the show, which is what's on our mind outside of politics. I feel that we should talk about the shutdown as a reprieve instead Mm -hmm. of being ended, because it is not at all clear to me that anything is going to shift the political dynamics over the next three weeks. It just seems like they triggered a pressure valve. All right, well, let's relieve some of our pressure. Let's get people a couple paychecks. But it doesn't sound as if anyone's really shifted in their position. I do think that the president learning that the Democrats will not be taken hostage this way is positive. I I hope that he learned his lesson. I'm not 100% optimistic. But the fact that it's being reported, he's been sort of consumed by the media coverage and the media coverage, the narrative seems to be sort of 100%. He blinked, which I'm, I'm always sort of half tempted to be like, don't do that. Don't, don't press him. But like, at the same time, somebody, we have to stand up and stop being sort of totally twisted and thrown by his mercurial whims. I think the way that his cabinet officials performed around the shutdown influenced his decision to do this stopgap as well, because Wilbur Ross's comments were so mm. horrifying. And it and from what I had read, he was already feeling the pressure of the negative coverage. He was already understanding that the public was not happy with him about this shutdown. And so if you haven't followed exactly what's happened, there's a three-week stopgap that funds the government until February 15th. It is essentially the deal that was struck at the end of 2018. So nothing new. We had 35 days of chaos and angst for no reason. There's no wall money. The president is threatening to declare an emergency if there isn't an agreement on wall money in the next three weeks. Both Republicans and Democrats seem to be shifting a little bit in their language. Democrats are still absolutely no wall. But yes, of course, we need border security. Republicans, including the president, are starting to say, well, not like a concrete wall, mm-hmm. like a smart wall or fencing or whatever. And so I think people at least are trying to talk about something that could look like a compromise position. I think it's important to note that shutting down the government doesn't just stop the government from spending money. I think a lot of people are confused about the impact of government shutdowns. Standard & Poor's estimates that the U.S. economy lost over $6 billion in the past five weeks. It was more expensive to close the government than it would have been to keep it open. Mm. So what is your thoughts on the perception that the air traffic controllers stepping in and sort of the delays in the flights was also a piece of the puzzle with regards to why he decided to open the government back up? I don't know what is in his mind, but I think that was essential into moving some members of Congress. Mm -hmm, I agree. And I think it's important to remember the president should not be able to shut down the government by himself. This was Mm -hmm. the Congress acquiescing to the president. Yeah. Congress could have opened the government back up. They could have passed legislation and overridden a veto. If our legislators were doing their jobs, this would not have happened. I think you're right. I think the really the last piece of the puzzle to move the the complete impasse was the members of Congress being really frustrated. The, the coverage of the Senate Republicans basically yelling at Mitch McConnell and telling him this is your fault, I think, was pretty bananas. And I think that they just they were feeling feeling the heat in a serious way. 
Some of them have talked publicly about legislation to prevent future shutdowns, mm-hmm. just removing this as an option. And I think that's a good idea. Rand Paul has had out there for some time proposed legislation that says if Congress can't pass a budget, then the budget for the prior year goes into effect minus one percent across the board. And as time goes on, that percentage gets higher. And it essentially incentivizes legislators to keep programs funded, at least at their current levels. I don't know if that goes far enough, to be honest with you. I think there are certain members of Congress who would see that as a win and would be incentivized to have a shutdown under those circumstances. I mean, I almost feel like it needs to be something more similar to European style votes of no confidence or Mm -hmm. triggering elections if Congress can't do the most fundamental aspects of their work. The biggest takeaway for me from this, the longest shutdown in U.S. history, is that our system is cracking under the pressure of our current political environment and that I don't see any dramatic changes in our political polarization, although obviously you and I are committed to helping people change conversations. And I definitely think that that is everyone's work to do in the world is to go out and have individual political conversations in a different, more grace-filled way. However, I do at the same time, think that our system is cracking. While I do think it is, to a certain extent, the individual personality of our current president that has strained it more than normal, I just think we do. We need to talk about some systematic changes. Our world has changed, our economy has changed, and our political system is the same one we had in 1930. And we need to think about that. And we need to think about, okay, well, what needs to change? What systematic changes do we need to relieve some of this pressure so that our system is more adaptable and better designed to our current reality? I can get very indignant about the fact that we dramatize everything in Washington, D.C., and we celebritize our lawmakers and how that is a huge part of what you're talking about, that pressure is causing these cracks. You're right, though. That's not going to change. I don't think Mm -hmm. we're going to go back to a time when we can't name the most powerful senators and Mm -hmm. when we don't know the storyline of what's unfolding in Washington, D.C. So I can be mad about that reality all day, but fighting with it will not make it no longer our current reality. And so I do think that we need to I do think there should be legislation passed to prevent future shutdowns. I think we need that at this point. That's too bad that we knew, but I think we do. The other major news development over the weekend was the indictment of Roger Stone, a Trump campaign official until about August 2015. He is the 34th person charged in the Mueller probe. It was a very dramatic scene with the FBI, some who were furloughed and not getting paid but volunteering for service, coming in and raiding his house and arresting him. He's a very infamous I would argue, ridiculous figure and has been in American politics for several decades. And so it's interesting to see this sort of the way he has gleefully owned his dark arts of politics, seeing those chickens come home to roost as he was uh, led away in handcuffs. I got to be honest. We don't really have time to walk you through Roger Stone's resume, which is Mm. a fascinating endeavor. I might do that on the Nightly Nuance this week if nothing else dramatic unfolds. But suffice it to say, he has been embedded in Republican politics in a pretty dark way for a very long time. He has a tattoo of Richard Nixon on his back. So a lot of his references are to Richard Nixon, Mm. even included in the most recent indictment. Can I just start with something that I think is an interesting tidbit? His middle name is Jason. Roger Jason Stone. Doesn't that feel wrong? For as old as he is, 
Yeah, that's really interesting because he's kind of old to have. That's a pretty like newer name. Yeah, I thought it was fascinating. And if you want, if you just want a deep dive on the ridiculousness that is Roger Stone, there is a documentary called Get Me Roger Stone on Netflix that sort of tracks his political history. It will not make you feel good about anything. No. Okay, so this indictment sets the scene. It just starts out. Here we are in the world where Russian hackers have stolen emails from the Democratic National Committee. The Clinton campaign has had emails stolen. WikiLeaks is publishing those things. In the summer of 2016, according to the indictment, Stone reaches out to a senior Trump campaign official. It's been reported that that was Steve Bannon. And he starts having a conversation. WikiLeaks might have this stuff. And the the response from the Trump campaign is, what else might they have? Instead of the appropriate response was, oh, dear, let's call the FBI. By August, Roger Stone is both publicly and privately saying that he's in touch with WikiLeaks. That's the thing about this indictment. There's really nothing in it that we didn't already know because Roger Stone lives his life out loud. Yeah, he's a blabbermouth. So WikiLeaks comes out in August of 2016 to say, no, we are not in touch with Roger Stone. And so then Stone says, well, it's a back channel through a mutual friend. And he stays in touch with the Trump campaign about what's going on. There are two other people in this indictment that are referred to as person one and person two. And you kind of need to understand this to get to the raid of Roger Stone's house. Person one is a guy named Jerome Corsi, who has testified with the Mueller team. He rejected a deal to plead guilty to one count of perjury. He doesn't think he's going to be indicted now. If I were him, I would never have said that publicly because I think that there are probably grounds to indict him. Person two is Randy Credico, who is a radio talk show host. Okay, so with both both Credico and Corsi have their own connections to Julian Assange. And Roger Stone had all kinds of text and email exchanges with both of them, as well as with people who the indictment classifies as Trump supporters and Trump campaign officials. And the the whole conversation is like, what does Julian Assange have? When is he going to drop it? Stone is really interested in releasing information about the Clinton Foundation and some specific aspects of Clinton's service as Secretary of State. I'm guessing that's Benghazi. I don't know that that's what he was referring to because it's it's vague in the indictment. And there's a discussion where Stone tells people on the Trump campaign that this would be a good time to talk about how Hillary Clinton is old and her health is declining and she's having trouble remembering. And I've got to be honest with you, this indictment to me is the least impressive of the documents that have come from the Mueller team. All of the previous indictments have been so just laser-like in their precision. This one sounds like a game of telephone. It's very odd. Mm -hmm. That could just be because they're dealing with a very odd duck who communicated in very odd ways. But it is harder to follow in that kind of, oh, you are nailing this person to the wall way that the previous indictments have been drafted. So Stone is having all these communications with lots of people, including the media, about what WikiLeaks is up to. Then the Senate and the House start investigating Russian election interference, and Roger Stone rolls into Congress and says that he doesn't have anything that would be helpful to that investigation. He had no advanced knowledge of the publication of stolen emails. His only contact with Julian Assange was through this radio host, Credico. He doesn't mention that he was also trying to reach out to Assange through Corsi and that all of his communications were by phone. There, there's no documentary evidence that he has. He said he never discussed with anyone in the Trump campaign 
Surprise, none of that is true. Okay, House Investigative Committee asked Randy Credico to testify, and Roger Stone and Randy Credico start texting each other, and Stone encourages him to take the Fifth Amendment. And then Credico gets subpoenaed, and this is where Stone quotes the Godfather and says, you need to stick to the story, lie to the committee, don't contradict my testimony. So Credico did that. He took the Fifth Amendment, but he and Stone keep texting each other, I don't know why, about where all this is going. And Credico starts saying to Stone, basically, you've thrown me under the bus here. I was not a back channel to Assange for you. You should just correct the record and cooperate. And Stone starts getting increasingly more threatening. And he says, I'm going to take your dog, which is a therapy dog that Randy Credico uses. He said that his lawyers couldn't wait to rip him to shreds. He told him to die with some expletives around that. Like, it gets really ugly between these two people. I don't know why Stone decided that Credico is who he was going to throw under the bus and kept Corsi out of it for so long. But I think that's an interesting dynamic here. So... Based on all of this, he has been charged with one count of obstruction of justice, five counts of making false statements, and one count of witness tampering. That's all the threats to Credico. If he were convicted of all seven counts and got the maximum sentence, it would be 45 years in jail. Interestingly, the Mueller team did not give him the option to surrender which is an option that they have provided to other folks in this investigation. The, As you mentioned, Sarah, the rate of his house was kind of unusually aggressive. I read some commentary that he must have done something that really angered the Mueller team. Knowing what I know about Roger Stone, that would not be surprising. Well, it, it could just also be that the Mueller team takes witness tampering really seriously and wants mm-hmm. to send a message that you don't threaten people's lives and dogs over not cooperating with them. So that is the situation with Roger Stone. He lied to Congress about his contacts with WikiLeaks, and he lied in ways that could have given Congress material information about their investigation into Russian election interference. I should say, if you are trying to follow the Mueller investigation, This is not about a direct link between Roger Stone and Russia. It is about a link between Roger Stone and WikiLeaks, which had a link to Russia. So it is a little bit convoluted, but it is, I think, clearly within the scope of what the Mueller team has been tasked with doing. Okay, so big picture on the Mueller investigation is that Lots of people have been charged with criminal activity. I think it feels like it's taking a long time. I saw this graphic that compares it to investigations of Watergate and other high-level Washington scandals. It's actually moving pretty fast. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. This work takes a lot of time. I think, though, that David Frum in The Atlantic had something really important to say, which is that Mueller and his team are doing what law enforcement does. They are meticulously chasing down things that amount to crimes, things that are codified in United States law as actual crimes. The worst of what happened here might not be codified in U.S. criminal law. We don't explicitly have statutes that address what Roger Stone did. We don't explicitly have statutes necessarily that address what Steve Bannon seems to have done based on his contact with Roger Stone or the fact that after Steve Bannon is having this interaction with Roger Stone, the president put him on the National Security Council. Hmm. 
So I just want to read what David Frum says, which is that the, the gist of it is Congress needs to act because getting to all of this through a prosecutor, the prosecutor should do what he is doing. It is right and good and should move forward. But it is not enough. So here he he says, we are now entering the third year of a presidency tainted from its start by clandestine assistance from Russia. That corrupt connection overhangs every strategic decision. The president's repeated threats to quit NATO, his refusal to implement congressionally voted sanctions to punish Russia for nerve agent poisonings in the U.K., Only 31% of Americans feel confident that Russian President Vladimir Putin is not blackmailing their own president, according to the latest Marist poll. The truth about these things is presumably known to Mueller and his team. To the extent that this truth is prosecutable, Americans will eventually learn more of it through further indictments and if the next attorney general allows it to be released, a future Mueller report. Perhaps that will happen this year or maybe next. But now, now the country is in danger. Now it is headed by a president whose fundamental loyalty to the United States cannot intelligently be trusted. Waiting for Mueller has always been a slow option. That slowness more and more appears a danger that the country cannot safely risk. It's time for Congress to step in, not with a view to punishing the guilty, but with a view to protecting the security of the nation from the guilty, whether they are ever juridically punished or not. I agree. I was reading all this different polling about besides the 35 percent of Americans who will follow Donald Trump to the gates of hell. The rest of us seem very skeptical. We're skeptical about the connection to Russia. We're skeptical about whether or not Bob Mueller is completely trustable. We're skeptical about Donald Trump. I mean, it's just I don't know what Congress is waiting for. I think they're I think he's exactly right. There's enough here for Congress to act. I don't know if they're waiting for 100 percent of Americans to stand up and say, this is what we want you to do. But that's never going to happen. But I think, again, this is reflective of a systematic problem in that the current Congress and our current political situation is that's almost what we need. And we're not going to have that. So we're stuck in this in-between zone in which we're trying to convince everybody, but that's never going to happen. But we all know it's bad enough to act, but we don't want to act without 100 percent of people on board, which is never going to happen. Well, before we move on to complimenting the other side, we did want to update on the latest developments with regards to a troop withdrawal from Afghanistan. I covered this in quite a bit of detail on the Nightly Nuance on Monday night. But in a nutshell, the Taliban has been increasing its attacks. That raises the pressure on both the government in Afghanistan and the United States government, where our president is increasingly impatient to get the troops out of a 17-year conflict. And in this, we are in agreement. I would also like to see an end to the 17-year conflict in Afghanistan. The Taliban will not negotiate with the Afghan government because they feel like it's a puppet of the United States government. So basically, it was the U.S. envoy from the Trump administration and the Taliban for a six-day meeting in Qatar. Where there seems to, by both parties' accounts, been a lot of progress. Taliban agreed to not become a training gown for terrorists in the future. Side note, I'm not sure how we're going to endorse or enforce that. And there seems to be some sort of agreement on a ceasefire and a pullout of withdrawal. There was some progress. I think on that, everybody's agreed. Well, then, of course, the president of Afghanistan pipes up and said, I wasn't a party to that. Y'all are in a hurry. We don't need to move so fast. He's up for re-election in July. He's also under pressure because of these increased attacks. And he was like, no, we can't have an agreement unless the Taliban's going to talk to us. And there's going to be absolutely no discussion of an interim government. You know, I think there's been some movement. 
But I have to agree on the fact that the idea that we need to rush out of here is how we've always gotten in trouble in this region and other areas of the world. And so I hope that there is some mindfulness of that and some patience that president of Afghanistan is saying that their troops are not properly trained. There's not enough of them to maintain the peace with the Taliban. And so that's very concerning. The problem is we always our presidents want to get out, but no one says, hey, we're going to need to spend a butt ton of money to get out of here correctly because nobody wants to hear that. And so we try to rush out and we leave a vacuum. And I really desperately hope that does not happen again here. I agree with you. I think this is such an important development because when I reflect on the fact that we've been in Afghanistan really our entire adult lives, it is important both to get out and also to get out in a way that doesn't require us to be back for even longer. And I like that you said a butt ton of money. I got a little distracted by that. But, <laughs> but you know, here's the thing. Like, it costs a butt ton of money to be there. It's going to cost mm-hmm. a lot to withdraw. It could cost even more in the long term to not do that right. Yes. And so just being thoughtful about this process is obviously really, really important. We're just not super great at short-term, long-term trade-offs. That's right. We're always taking the short term because it's a matter of politics and especially in a highly competitive political environment in which we find ourselves. That's unfortunate. It's particularly unfortunate with foreign policy. That seems like a good transition, Beth, into your compliment the other side, which is with regards to Venezuela. Yes. So short version, very short version of what's going on in Venezuela. That that country has been in economic crisis for some time now, Um, since 2015. Millions of people have left Venezuela essentially as economic refugees. They're projecting unbelievable inflation this year, and they have a government that is worsening the economic crisis, that is suppressing dissent, that is committing acts of violence against its people. And the situation has come to a head because an opposition leader has said that he is now serving as the interim president. Maduro, President Maduro, was re-elected in an election that is widely believed to have been fraudulent. The international community has serious concerns about the propriety of this election. And the United States and Canada have come out and said, we're going to recognize recognize this opposition leader as the interim president of Venezuela instead of Maduro. And our administration has said that it is going to put in more sanctions on Venezuela, which will cripple an already crippled economy. Our administration has said that military options are on the table, which I really struggle with. And we'll talk about that at greater length in another episode because it deserves a a longer conversation. Today, my compliment is for a group of lawmakers in Florida. This is a bipartisan group. It includes Donna Shalala. It includes Mario Diaz-Balart. He is a Republican. And it includes Representative Darren Soto, a, a Democrat. These lawmakers are putting forth legislation that would extend temporary protected status to Venezuelans, essentially saying one of the ways that the United States can help with this problem is by welcoming Venezuelans to our country who are leaving essentially as refugees from their country. And I think that is an appropriate way for us to contribute to a solution to this crisis. And I hope that legislation is passed. I am also going to compliment a bipartisan committee. This is the 17 members of the group appointed to work out a compromise on border security funding. First of all, y'all doing the Lord's work. Godspeed. So in a good follow-up to our previous conversation, everyone on the committee are members of the appropriation committees in either the House or the Senate. So the group will be led by the House Appropriations Committee Chairman Nita Lowey. 
And ranks include the panel's top Republican, Kay Granger from Texas, which we talked about as the first female Republican on the Appropriations Committee. So I think it's great they step forward. I think it's a good group. I think it's a a group that is not filled with ideologues with regards to the immigration debate. That's helpful. And I just, I just, (laughs) Godspeed. I wish them the best. And I hope that they come forward with some sort of compromise that will prevent another shutdown since we're under another ticking clock. Next up, we will take a short break to hear from our sponsors, and then we're going to talk about the abortion law that was passed in New York. We're also going to talk about abortion bills that have been proposed in the state of Utah and hopefully get to some grace-filled discussion about reproductive rights in the United States here in 2019. Summer is here. Pack your bag with sunscreen, your emotional support water bottle, and that steamy bee treat. But wait, don't stop there. This year, there's a new kind of essential that's right at your fingertips. Dipsy is an app full of hundreds of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods, goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut. To explore the bounds of your pleasure, new content is released every week. So in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. Dipsy offers a modern approach to romance through high-quality and captivating audio fiction. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. This year is going by so quickly, and I had a little bit of a moment of panic about it this week. I thought to myself, I'm losing track of time. It's going so fast. It's going to be December before I know it. My kids are growing up, and I just kind of was spinning out. And I stopped, and I closed my eyes, and I pictured my last therapist, who I haven't seen since the end of 2020. But I remember the way he talked me through these issues, and I sort of channeled his energy I put my feet on the ground and thought, this is just how time feels now. And there's nothing wrong with that or right about it. It just is. But those skills that I learned in therapy are so important to helping me take a second to celebrate what's going right and decide what I want to adjust for the rest of the year. If you're thinking of starting therapy, which I cannot recommend enough, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot slash Pantsuit. The second most stressful thing after planning a trip is packing for it. This is true. This is a true story. I have just told you the clothes I have don't fit. They don't go together the way I want them to or I'm missing some essential piece. And then I discovered Quince. It's my go-to for high-quality vacation essentials. Like this premium European linen dress that's going to get us all through the heat wherever we're traveling. Blouses and shorts from $30. Washable silk 
tops, premium luggage options, and so much more. All Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than their similar brands. By partnering directly with top factories, Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to all of us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices and premium fabrics and finishes. I got big plans for my Quince chiffon pleated skirt in Japan. They like a loose, flowy look over there to battle the heat. I will be adopting that strategy with that skirt. Pack your bags with high quality essentials from Quince. Go to quince.com slash pantsuit for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash pantsuit to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash pantsuit. had a lot of conversations here at Pansu Politics about the changing composition of the Supreme Court. Both Beth and I feel that, particularly due to the statements of Chief Justice John Roberts, that a revisiting and particularly an overturning of Roe v. Wade is unlikely. However, we are alone in that because every state in the dang union seems in a hurry to pass its own version in preparation of an overturning of Roe v. Wade, either in strengthening reproductive rights or in trying to outlaw abortion. It seems as if there is a frenzy of reproductive rights or reproductive changes to reproductive rights in states all across the country right now. I also think that Because this topic is so emotionally charged, it can be difficult to just understand what these laws say and do. And that might be helpful to walk through before we discuss kind of our feelings about these laws, just what they are. The New York Reproductive Health Act was signed into law last Tuesday on the 46th anniversary of Roe v. Wade. It passed 38-24 in New York Senate and 92-47 to in its assembly. And one thing that I think adds a little bit of context, especially given Sarah's really, I think, well-said introduction, is that this law has been floating around New York for a long time and just hasn't been able to get out of New York's Senate. The last election brought enough Democrats into New York's legislature to move this forward. But this wasn't prompted entirely by Brett Kavanaugh. It has been under discussion for some time as the the Supreme Court seems to have gone in a more conservative direction. So here's what it says. I'm just going to read a little bit of the text. It says, every individual has the fundamental right to choose or refuse contraception or sterilization. Every individual who becomes pregnant has the fundamental right to choose to carry the pregnancy to term, to give birth to a child, or to have an abortion pursuant to this article. So this says, as a matter of state law, Whatever happens with Roe versus Wade at the federal level, however the United States Constitution is construed, as a matter of state law, you have a right to receive an abortion without any restrictions until 24 weeks of pregnancy. And you have the right to receive an abortion at any time, including after 24 weeks, if the life or health of a woman is at risk or if the fetus is not viable. It is a public health law instead of part of the criminal code, which is where abortion lives in most of the United States. And that has important implications, which we can talk about. This law also allows physician's assistants to carry out surgical abortions and licensed midwives and nurse practitioners to do non-surgical procedures using medications if they are acting within the lawful scope of their practices. So that is what the law 
says and does. You mean the incendiary Facebook conversations I had about delivering children and then puncturing their brains was not accurate to the legislative content of this bill, Beth? Correct. It is not accurate. Okay. Okay. I mean, I had an instinct, but I wasn't sure because that seemed to be the only conversation that we were having across America is, can you deliver a live child and then murder it? Can I tell you about Utah before we get into the way we're talking about all of this? Sure. So there are two bills filed in Utah. This is the other side of the spectrum. So New York has done something very bold in favor of reproductive rights. Utah is trying to do something very bold in favor of the pro-life movement. Representative Cheryl Acton has filed House Bill 136, which would ban abortion after 15 weeks, with exceptions for rape and incest and the health of the mother or the child. Representative Carrie Ann Lizenby has filed House Bill 166, which would ban abortion in cases where the child would have Down syndrome. And here is what she has said about this legislation. Neither Roe versus Wade or Planned Parenthood versus Casey anticipated that abortion law would be used as a means of eugenics and discrimination. It seems Roe has eroded into the justification for the mass extermination of an entire class of people with a genetic condition known as Down syndrome. That kind of discrimination must end. So those bills have just been filed. There is discussion underway in Utah about their constitutionality. They have not been voted on, signed into law. So it's a preliminary discussion, but I think an important one to have, especially as we are talking about the legislation in New York. Before we get started, I really want to recommend everyone go back and listen to an episode we did in February of 2017. It was with Dr. Tamara Tweel on involuntary miscarriages and voluntary abortion. It's one of the conversations I'm most proud of ever having on this podcast. Dr. Tweel had an involuntary miscarriage in Ohio and was sort of swept up under a heartbeat bill that came before the Ohio legislature, and she went and testified about that. And I think it's just a really good introduction to the unintended consequences of bills like this and what kind of women they affect. I've also been sharing quite a bit both the documentary After Tiller. Have you ever seen this documentary, Beth? No. It's amazing. It's a documentary that follows, I think, three or four uh, late-term abortion providers after the assassination of Dr. Tiller and his church and just sort of how they ended up there, their journeys with protesters and laws and sort of trying to be regulated out of existence, why they perform late-term abortion, their sort of typical patient, all these different things. It's a very real life on the ground. This is what it means, not sort of incendiary Facebook conversation in a really good introduction. There's also an article, we'll put all these in the show notes, that was on Jezebel, I think, last year from a, an anonymous woman telling the story of having a an abortion at 32 weeks. That I think is also, and it just grounds the conversation in the reality of people falling under these, these bills, as opposed to just sort of 30,000 feet discussions about this legislation in a way that I find really, really helpful to the conversation. I think those articles that you're talking about get to the realization that I have had in this round of the Roe versus Wade battle in America. And it's going to sound incredibly simple to the point of not being useful, but it is kind of sunk in for me in a pretty deep way. I think one of the greatest issues that we have in America in any conversation surrounding abortion right now is that if you are on the pro-life side of the spectrum, 
you are identifying as such and kind of putting on a team jersey and talking about this like it's easy. It is we value life or we don't. If you are on the pro-choice side of the spectrum, you have your pro-choice jersey on and you are talking about this as if it's easy. And it's obvious that we have to allow women to have control over their own bodies. And I think the reality of abortion, if you really ground yourself in the facts of when and why and how people receive these procedures, it is so hard. And talking about it like it's easy is taking the conversation in a direction that is so unhelpful to all of us. We had our former, well, I guess still a sorority sister of both of ours and a a Disciples of Christ minister, Erin Wathen, on the podcast to talk about her book. In a part of her book, she says, I am personally pro-life as a minister, but I am politically pro-choice. And when I tell people, when I particularly talk to my female friends, there is a like a, they have a physical reaction. It's like you can see the relief. Oh, I didn't know that was an option. Like I just, you can see people just sort of exhale. Oh yeah, that's what I am. Yeah, that's definitely what I am. This idea that there are two sides and you must pick one, even if on the most basic level you are uncomfortable with abortion, but understand that the government is not the best venue with which to make these decisions, you still feel forced into one camp or the other, as opposed to being able to say, I see, I see truth in both sides. And when you give people this option to say, hey, I have a friend and she describes herself as personally pro-life, but politically pro-choice, it's really fascinating to watch. There is literally an, an exhale and a, oh, like you can see their shoulders drop. It's a physical reaction people have to, oh, great, because that, that that exactly what you said, this approach of both sides saying, I have the easy answer. How could you possibly not see that I'm right? Leaves so many people and just the bigger tension-filled reality out of the picture. And I think those labels are still pretty reductive. As I have gotten older, thought more about this issue, learned more, listened to conversations like yours with Dr. Tweel, I have a harder time figuring out where I fit in this whole discussion because the idea of being personally pro-life for me gets messy when I think about the really hard scenarios that could present themselves. If I got pregnant today, even though I don't want to be pregnant today, I would, of course, choose to have that child and raise that child here in our loving household. And whatever conditions that child might have, since I am, you know, getting older and life deals you difficult cards when you're not getting older and getting pregnant sometimes, whatever conditions that child might have, I believe we have the resources and the support and the tools to adjust to that. And and I would, of course, go forward with that pregnancy. If I got late into that pregnancy and learned that my life was at risk in the process, it is not as simple for me today to make a decision about that as it might have been a few years ago. A few years ago, I might have said, I'm still going to have that child because of the way that I believe in valuing life. Today, I have two other little girls who depend on me as their mother. 
And so I don't know whether I could say I'm 100% personally pro-life in the way that it gets defined sometimes, because I can imagine impossibly difficult scenarios where I have to evaluate not only my life versus a baby, but this potential baby versus my two living children who've been with me for, you know, eight and three years. And on the other side of the spectrum, I understand what Representative Lizenby in Utah is talking about. I am very uncomfortable Mm -hmm. with the statistics about the number of special needs children who are aborted. And I share those concerns. I don't think a complete ban on abortion is the right way to address them because of what I've just described in the other space. But what I'm trying to get to, I don't have the right answers on all of this, and I don't think anybody does. And I think we could have a better discussion about what laws can and can't do if we would all acknowledge that from an ethical perspective, from a spiritual perspective, from a legal perspective, this is really hard. Listening to you, let me say this. I think there are scenarios in which you could be and would remain a person who deeply values life and still choose to have an abortion. I'm sorry, I just believe that to be true. I believe there are women who love their children, love every child on this planet as much as I do, and who have had abortions. That is the complicated reality in which I find myself and which I have personally experienced. An abortion is one moment in time. It is one choice that somebody makes. And I understand that it has permanent ramifications, but lots of choices we have do. And we are never as human beings and should never be as human beings reduced to one choice we make at one moment in time. We put too much power on those choices, on this topic, on this issue politically, and are deliberately and willfully blind to the bigger issues at hand. We don't want to talk about health care. We don't want to talk about child care. We don't want to talk about prison. We don't want to talk about the death penalty. We want we don't want to talk about the huge, huge universe of things that touch on the word life. We're human beings. I mean I just we want to make it so simple. We want to make it so easy. Just like you said, and it's not, and it's never going to be, because the word life is so big, and the choices we make are so complicated, and when we just want to reduce it down to it's always okay or it's never okay, we are missing the point. I strongly agree with you about that. Another question that I've been considering this week is what kind of country would we be if this question were off the table? Lord, oh, if I had a magic wand. But just think about that. This so permeates the way people vote, the way people view the judiciary, what party people affiliate with. What kind of country might we be if one of a thousand scenarios occurred where this just were not a question for us? 
And I think we need to pull back from that and imagine that a little bit because I don't know that we're consciously aware of what this is doing to us as a people to fight in these binary, really simplistic terms about this problem. I don't think that the analogy to the question of slavery during the Civil War is that far off. I'll be honest. The only reason I don't think that abortion has reached the fevered pitch or the breaking point that slavery was for us as a country is because there's not an entire economy at risk in the same way that slavery was. But I was thinking as we were reading through this bill in New York, okay, so Roe v. Wade gets overturned. Then you have people traveling to New York and other states in which it is people with the means in which it is a place where abortion is still legal. Then you have these states dealing with an influx of people and a legal question in much the same way you had people dealing with fugitive slaves. Okay, well, do we get to punish someone coming in from another state because it's illegal in their state? Then do you have those states in which abortion is illegal, pressuring states where abortion is legal to not let the citizens of our state travel? I mean, where does this end? I don't know where this ends. And that is what really concerns me. And, you know, because what you said, because it permeates everything, because it is a very intensely philosophical, spiritual discussion about life, about human life, about equality and access, and all these issues really tied up in the very premise of our nation, which is that all men are created equal and have the inalienable right to the pursuit of happiness. And so, you know, I don't I don't know where it ends. And I don't know as we continue down this road where we refuse to see each other as anything but enemies on the other side of this debate that we want to make simplistic. Yeah, I don't I don't know. I don't know where it ends. I read an article recently about the Tenth Amendment in preparation for a series that we're doing on the Constitution and we'll be sharing with y'all soon. And one of the things that I thought was so interesting in this article, a professor analyzing the Tenth Amendment was talking about the value of living in a, in a federal system and was saying, here's an example. Marriage equality, if you zoom way out, was a really important conversation between the states and the federal government. What the Supreme Court ultimately did was step back and look at the conversation happening between states and the federal government. And I had never thought of it that way. And I think one of the challenges in the entire abortion debate from a legal perspective is that that conversation ended pretty rapidly with Roe versus Wade and people weren't finished. In a way, the marriage equality conversation felt pretty finished by the time that question got to the Supreme Court. There are people, obviously, who still are not supportive of marriage equality, but the cultural tide on that has so significantly turned to where I think, you know, so many of us see that as an important recognition that we're all human beings entitled to that pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness, as you said, Sarah. We're, we're not even close to that on abortion. What I am hopeful for is that New York's law and laws like it will 
will allow some of that conversation to unfold where states are saying, look, regardless of where the federal government is, this is where we are. The risk in that, of course, is that you get on the flip side, Utah's saying, well, here's where we are. And it's in a really different place. And and I worry about how that conversation unfolds. But trying to take a long view, as you're doing with the analogy to the Civil War, you know, I'm hopeful that this is some kind of a dialogue between the states and the federal government that we that we need to have. And I also think it's helpful that New York has confronted this directly, and in a way, Utah also, because Roe versus Wade and especially Planned Parenthood versus Casey are really premised on kind of somewhat arbitrary, somewhat scientific views on when a life becomes viable. And I feel like both of these attempts at legislation in Utah and the the legislation in New York kind of say, you know what, we're just not really talking about that anymore. That's not what we're talking about. That's not what motivates anyone in this debate. There are zero people who feel differently about a baby at 16 weeks than they felt about it at 14 weeks. So let's stop pretending. And let's really get to the heart of what we are talking about here. Yeah, I mean, that's always been problematic, especially as medical science advances. And the 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 week at which a fetus is viable is continually, you know, moving back in time because right. medical science is getting so much better. So I think that's right. And, I, you know, I think that centering the conversation at, at a late term in pregnancy around rape and incest and the health of the mother or child is helpful, although it seemed to be, like I said, completely ignored on Facebook. People just completely ignored that aspect of the law. I saw that, too. And one of the criticisms that I saw from a Republican legislator in New York was concerned that health of the mother could be interpreted broadly to include the mental capacity of the mother. That seems like a feature, not a problem to me, because I think some of the most damaging circumstances into which we bring children are those in which we do have a parent who is psychologically or physically abusive because of their own challenges. And so I understand the concern. And look, I don't think anybody wants to see the number of abortions in this country rise. I particularly don't think anybody in this country wants to see the number of abortions of children who are in the 30th week of pregnancy rise. If there is something so serious that a woman has carried a baby almost a term, which is not a pleasant, fun experience, and an experience that will forever alter her body and who she is as a human being, if you get that far into a pregnancy, I think it requires something that would fit into almost any person's reasonable definition of we cannot go forward to get to an abortion. I mean, do you think I'm off on that, Sarah? Earth Breeze Eco Sheets look just like a dryer sheet, but it's ultra concentrated, liquidless laundry detergent. It's the best of all worlds. Earth Breeze is tough on stains and odors while being kind to the planet and your skin, so it's good for sensitive skin. It reduces plastic waste. All of these things are true and amazing, but let's get to the heart of it. Y'all know I have a laundry system. You know it revolves around training children as young as possible to do their own laundry. Earthbreeze sheets feels like they were invented for this. Because littles maybe sometimes struggle with those big, heavy jugs. Or maybe you worry about the pods, but here we go. Here we go, y'all. Earth Breeze Eco Sheets. It's like the perfect solution. A child as young as two can handle these sheets. And... 
even with toddlers, like you can get them involved. And this is a way to get them helping with laundry even before they could do it themselves. Ugh, gotta love it so much. Right now, our listeners can receive 40% off EarthBreeze just by going to earthbreeze.com slash pantsuit. That's earthbreeze.com slash pantsuit to cut out single-use plastic in your laundry room and claim 40% off your subscription. earthbreeze.com slash pantsuit. We do quite a bit of hosting here at the Silvers household, and I think there is nothing that completes a table for dinner. Like a beautiful loaf of bread and wild grain has made that so simple because they send gorgeous loaves of sourdough bread. Lots of spins on the ingredients, but always just this fantastic, high quality, easy to bake in 25 minutes or less from frozen bread that turns out perfectly every single time. I also have to tell you about the free croissants for life that come with your wild grain orders. And those croissants make the morning, your brunch, maybe your late night snack flaky and like you're sitting in a French cafe and they're just perfect every single time. That's what I love about Wild Grain. It's easy, it's consistent, it's fully customizable. It is the first ever Bake From Frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries. For a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. You heard me, free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit, or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick and ugh, out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. They even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit. It's time to get your problem solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get $15 off your order with code PODCAST15. No, I don't think so. I do think the conversation with regards to particularly the Down syndrome question is very difficult. I had this conversation with a close friend of mine over the holiday break, and we were talking about, like we, like you said, well, yes, this is something that leaves all of us sort of concerned. I, I, concern's not a strong enough word for it. It's scary. It's scary to think about especially when you look at some of the Nordic countries that you don't have people with Down syndrome, that they're basically being eliminated. And we were talking about, well, government's not the right answer to that, if we could support families. But then I was thinking after we had this conversation, yeah, but those countries have great social safety nets. They have good health care. They do have support, both government and otherwise. I think what you're seeing in those countries is honestly a more secular view of life and pregnancy generally that we have not that we do not have at least in in large enough numbers in the United States and i don't know the answer to that you know i'm not going to look at the nordic countries and say 
you know, that they're terrible people or they they don't, you know, they have different morals or values than us. Although, I mean, I think there's some reality in that. But I don't know. I think that particularly with regards to genetic conditions, this is an incredibly difficult thing to face and to have a conversation about and will take really hard work on both sides to acknowledge the reality and to acknowledge the that there isn't an easy answer here. And that's not how you win the debate is is rushing to the end and saying, well, I figured it out. So everybody follow me. But inviting everyone to really think long and hard about the ways in which abortion may be being used when it comes to the question of genetic conditions and how we can have a conversation. I feel like, you know, that I get frustrated with myself because I feel like we talk about these difficult things. We talk about war in Afghanistan and we talk about income inequality and we talk about millennial burnout and we talk about Down syndrome and abortion. And all we say is, well, it's time to have difficult conversations. It's time to have a conversation. And I'm frustrated myself. But I think that's just part of it. That's just part of it is we are going to have to sit here and say, we don't know the bullet point moving forward. We don't know the action-oriented step. You know, we want to optimize and we want to take the data and find a solution. And sometimes that is not available to us. And the short-term gain of feeling like we've reached the conclusion is not worth the long-term cost of really just getting everybody further stuck in the mud. And I hate that the solution, because I am an action-oriented person, and I do want to feel like there is a black and white and an answer to every very difficult problem our culture and our society faces, but sometimes there isn't. And sometimes the answer is not an answer, but just an invitation to keep talking about it. And that can be frustrating, and I'm frustrated by it. But I don't know another way to not even move forward, but to stay here and figure out where we are. I'm not sure we know where we are yet. I think we're still fighting about where we want to be without really understanding where we currently are with regards to the abortion debate. I don't know where I am. I know where I am on law. I don't believe that law can fix the concerns that either the pro-life or the pro-choice side has, which puts me in the the awkward position of saying, I think Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey as legal matters are pretty bad opinions. And I also think that they got to the right policy outcome or as close to it as we can get. And I do not want to see them overturned. So that's a weird position to be in. And then as I think through it, just as an ethical matter, not just as an ethical matter, because I think that's more important than what the law is, right? Like, mm-hmm. what what is the ethical answer here? I don't know where I am. I know that part of what informs my perspective is that I am very comfortable with saying there are things in life that are worse than death. And so when I think about bringing a child, especially a special needs child, into a home that is not loving and that is not equipped. When I think about the prospect of forcing someone to have a child, especially any child, but especially a child who is going to need an extra layer of care and understanding and patience and wisdom that most of us just don't have, 
but that we are also capable of when you see people who are doing it, you know? There are things that I worry about for that child that to me seem harder than the abortion route. I also completely understand the rebuttal to that, which is human beings are resilient. Give everybody an opportunity. What? Who are you to decide that that's worse? That's valid. That's right. That appeals to me too. So as an ethical matter, I have no idea. I know that sitting here today, I am devastated by what we are doing, especially as it relates to Down syndrome and special needs children. I know that I am devastated that regular people have taken this issue up as a way to sort themselves. When I heard that the CovCath kids recite the Pledge of Allegiance by tagging on born and unborn to the end of the Pledge of Allegiance, I know that something about that felt hurtful to me. I also know why they do it, and I understand the feeling of cause that a lot of folks who believe passionately that any abortion is wrong feel. If I can't sort this out as an ethical matter, as one human being who thinks a lot about law and the role of government and a lot about religion and theology, you know, to me, that just counsels against trying to pass laws about it. As you were talking about that there is a fate worse than death, I think that's a really, really important sort of base setting and foundational thing to understand. And, I, and I'm and i thinking back to what we were discussing with Anne Helen Peterson on last week's show about that you, especially as a person of faith, you orient yourself under a, often there's sort of two camps. There's You orient yourself under an, the idea that what happens after we die is of the utmost importance that there is an accounting to be made and whether you go to heaven or hell. And then there's another camp in which I find myself in which we use the the tenets of our faith, the words of Christ to orient the way we live our lives on earth itself and the day-to-day living of life. And I think that is really what guides me when I think about abortion. And I can understand why if you were Focus primarily on the accounting and of the after-death placement of someone in either heaven or hell, that this would, it would feel very different to you. But for me, as a person who believes that the choices we make on earth itself and the way we live in, in connection with the human beings we're surrounded with at this moment in time is of the utmost importance, I find myself believing and knowing that there are people who make choices and hold love and justice and all the things and all the values that I hold close to myself, close to themselves, and still choose to have an abortion. I guess that's just where I'm at, is that I do, I think that's unimaginable to some people, but is not unimaginable to me. And I can't find a space to prioritize love and justice and connection with my fellow human beings and simultaneously using the law and government to, like you said, force them into a pregnancy. I just, it's not, it's not my personal ethics. It's not my personal values. It's, it's not something I've ever seen lived out in my personal experience, which is 
not as extensive as some, but more extensive than others with regards to reproductive rights considering my work at Planned Parenthood. So, you know, I think that the more we can think through the real life personal implications of these things, both on both sides have really hard things to think about. Like you said, whether regards to the genetic conditions and abortion and Down syndrome, whether it's the real life implications of women who have involuntary miscarriages and then have to deal with abortion laws, all these things. And the more we can acknowledge that and ground ourselves and take in as many of the lived experiences of people with these laws, with these medical conditions, with abortion itself, the better we all will be. What's on your mind outside of politics, Sarah? Well, I went and saw The Favorite last night. The Oscar-nominated. Actually, I've seen both of the big Oscar-nom leaders. I've seen Roma on Netflix and The Favorite in the theaters. I'm going to go out on a limb and say you have not seen either. I have not. (laughs) Roma is really beautiful. It is black and white, and I think that was a very good choice because it is a very autobiographical, very, like, day-to-day, on-the-ground, up-close-and-personal human experience of a movie. Trigger warning, there is a very intense scene in a delivery room. Just want to put that out there. Don't feel like that's in the media coverage. I did not know about it, and it really caught me off guard. Just there's some really intense things happening in the delivery room. I don't want to be a spoiler, but dang, people should know about that. But I think it's the way the movie is in black and white, like it keeps you removed from it in, to a certain extent. But it's really beautiful. It's a beautiful film. It's a very human film. The more I think about it, the more I liked it. But it's kind of an intense viewing experience. The Favorite's very different. <laughs> it's a historical movie about Queen Anne. And two, like, it's a kind of a true story about these two sort of ladies' maids and their political battle to become her favorite and be in, be in this sort of position of access superbly acted you get all the pretty costumes and all the great castles and grounds and all that rigmarole which I'm here for but I thought it had some really really great fascinating portrayals of historical figures and interesting things to say about women and politics and I loved it I thought it was fan freaking tastic so I was all up in a lot of different Oscar nominations I guess that's what I'm thinking about outside politics. Well, important question. With all of that, are you still watching Top Chef? Of course I'm still watching Top Chef. In fact, guess who I was at the movies with last night? Were you with Paducah Chef Sarah? I was run into the one and only Paducah Chef Sarah Bradley. That is awesome. I loved the most recent episode of Top Chef. I love all of them. And I feel like every year... The theme that it takes the chefs all this time to learn is just cook your food. Don't try to cook somebody Mm -hmm. else's food. Do what you do really well. But I thought the most recent episode was like such a great encapsulation of that because with the houseboats, I mean, it's, it's fun to see Kentucky shine like this. And I do appreciate the way that they're talking about Kentucky and showcasing what we have to offer in the state. But I loved that the woman who won the most recent challenge did it by making an Alabama oyster and a bag of puppy chow. I just thought Mm -hmm. it was fantastic. And it was just such a good encapsulation of what I feel like that show is about, which is the great life lesson of just do your work. You know, don't do somebody else's work. 
when they got the teams together and it was like Kelsey and Sarah, to, who are friends, I think, performed for Poor Top Shelf. And it was like houseboat party. I was like, oh, they got this. They got this in the bag. I knew they were going to win. I knew that they would have a fun party. I thought it was really fun. It's really funny because Sarah talks about how Kentucky has more shoreline than the state of Florida. And this will be this is this was a major moment in my life in my first year of law school. I think I actually said that Kentucky hate. Kentucky, no, I think I said Kentucky had more shoreline than any other state, which I think is what's got me hung up. But this was like a major controversy in my law school, whether the statistic was correct or not. And they still give me crap about it. So I just really like Leslie, shout out to a friend of the pod, Leslie, who I hope watches Top Chef and saw Sarah cite the statistic that Kentucky has more shoreline than the state of Florida. We have a lot of lakes, y'all. And it's, there's the entire top of Kentucky, which is a very long state, is a river. So... Just FYI, now you know that fun fact about Kentucky. Which is all you need to know, I think, to get into the rest of the week. So thank you for joining (laughs) us here. I know this was kind of an intense day on Pansy Politics, but there's intensity happening on Facebook that I think is unproductive. I hope that we brought something a little bit productive to the table. I thought it would be cool to end with this quote that our listener Sarah sent us. It is from Man, the Dwelling Place of God. Human society generally, and especially in the United States, has fallen into the error of assuming that greatness and fame are synonymous. Americans appear to take for granted that each generation provides a certain number of superior men and the democratic processes unerringly find those men and set them in a place of prominence. How wrong can people get? We have but to become acquainted with or even listen to the big names of our time to discover how wretchedly inferior most of them are. Many appear to have arrived at their present eminence by pool, brass, nerve, gall, and lucky accident. We turn away from them sick to our stomach and wonder for a discouraged moment if this is the best the human race can produce. But we gain our self-possession again by the simple expedient of recalling some of the plain men we know who live unheralded and unsung and who are made of stuff infinitely finer than the hoarse voice braggarts who occupy too much of the highest offices in the land. If we would see life steadily and see it whole, we must make a stern effort to break away from the power of that false philosophy that equates greatness with fame. The two may be and often are oceans and continents apart. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Pantsu Politics. We will be back in your ears tomorrow at The Nuance Life and again Friday with another episode. And until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. Dylan Garvin produces Pantsu Politics every week. And thanks for making us sound better and smarter, Dylan. Elise Knapp is our production assistant, which means we could not live without her scheduling, organization, feedback, and creativity. Thank you so much, Elise. We couldn't make Pantsu Politics without support from our listeners. Go to patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics to learn how you can receive more nuance and help make the show better. Special thanks to our executive producers who have committed to supporting us in a major life-giving way. Tracy Putoff, Tim Miller, Cherry Haas, Sarah's husband Nicholas Holland, and my husband Chad Silvers. Learn more about our live events that we're involved in and what we're reading each week by signing up for our weekly newsletter at pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. And connect with us and members of the Pantsu Politics community by following us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter.